Michael, this is all very confusing. This is On Markets with Remy Tino and Mike, the podcast where we decrypt and demystify economic, financial, and other investing concepts. Today, we're going to discuss fiduciaries. I'm sure many people have heard advisors tout themselves as fiduciaries in order to express both credibility and trust. But what exactly does that mean? And, and does the title truly carry the weight that is insinuated by many financial advisors? So, Mike, uh, a couple weeks ago, you wrote an article about this. Uh, I thought it was a great topic, and I think it's something we should discuss on the podcast today. So, you know, why don't you get us started? So, this came about because, um, you know, I meet with a fair num- number of uh, potential new clients in the office. And one of the first things they ask is, how do you get paid? And do you get paid commissions? And you can almost feel it in the air that they want you to say no when you, said, do you, when you say, do you get paid commissions? And we, you know, we don't. We get, you know, we get paid a fee. But there's nothing necessarily wrong with getting paid a commission. The fiduciary standard is something that says that you're legally obligated to act in the best interest of your clients. And if you get paid a commission, you must disclose it. And, you know, I think it's a fine rule, but, you know, I'm not really sure how it gets enforced. And I really feel that it sort of gives people a bit of a false sense of security that they're being protected. I see a lot of advisors out there using the fiduciary rule to basically tell clients and make them feel safe, right? We're a fiduciary, you know, we're obligated to act in your best interest. But, you know, it, it becomes a sales tool in and of itself, which I think is kind of ironic. I mean, best interest is a pretty subjective term, no? Yeah. It's like, you know, listen, when I was a little kid, my, my mother said that she was doing stuff for my own good. I rarely agreed, right? It, in her <laughs> mind, it was in my best interest. I didn't think so, you know, but yeah, it's so subjective. Who's the judge of what your best interest is? You, you talk to, to 10 different people, they're going to give you 10 different opinions, and every one of them has a, a, a reason or, or an argument for that being in your best interest. It's just, it's sort of a ridiculous rule, in my opinion. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a, I think the intention's there, but it doesn't really make any sense. So I'm curious, with that rule and, and, and with best interest, if, if I am a client and I come to you and I say, I need X, Y, Z, whatever that happens to be, uh, you can talk to me about a product that doesn't meet my needs. You can talk to me about a product that meets my needs, or you can talk to me about a product that exceeds my needs. Are you required as a fiduciary to talk to me about the product that exceeds my needs? I mean, I could argue that that's in my best interest, but I could also argue that if you, if you talk to me about a product that meets my needs, that's in my best interest. I guess how you define best interest, right? Plus, there's, there's like multiple ways to get to where you want to get to. If somebody says, this is my goal, there's not any one specific way usually to get to that goal. There's probably a couple of different ways you can go about it. And who's to say what is the best way for you? And, and it's a question of degrees too, right? What I might think is, is the best way may require you to take an element of risk that, that causes you to not sleep at night. And how heavily do I weigh that? Is, is that in your best interest? I'm, I'm, I'm causing you stress. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it's so nebulous. I just don't know how you can enforce that. And, and to use it as a, well, you're protected because I'm required to act in your best interest just seems ridiculous to me. Well, I think the irony too is that sometimes your best interest is to pay a commission. I mean, let's say you're 25, 30 years old, maybe just buying a mutual fund in, in, in an IRA or, or a 401k and just letting it grow for 30 or 40 years is in your best interest because you're going to pay a one-time commission fee versus a, you know, a fee that we would charge, which would be you know, a basis point fee on your assets over the next couple decades. In the long run, that commission is going to be substantially cheaper for that investor as long as they don't try to day trade it. So I read about this this thing a couple of years ago. We always talk about these little things that, that, that we read about and then they sort of stick with this. 
So I, re- I read about this experiment, I guess you call it, that a university did a bunch of years ago, where they took two people, two random people that didn't know each other, and they gave one person $20. And the, the rule of the game was that that person had to offer the other person some portion of that $20. And if the other por- person accepted the offer, they both got to keep their portion. So in other words, you know, I have $20, Remy, you know, I'm going to give you 10 of my $20. Do you accept it? If you accept, and you know what the deal is, right? If you accept, we each get to keep $10. But if you don't accept, neither one of us gets to keep any money. And the the result of the thing was what they tried to figure out was- Would you like to know what my answer would be? (laughs) Sure. I would say no, thank you. Because I know the rules of the game. I would like $19, please. Well, Ilson, you're in the financial services business, and I think we've probably had this conversation before. So you're at a bit of an unfair advantage. Actually, right? we haven't. This is the first I've heard of it, but I no. mean, I'm. Oh, you, I've never you, talked to you about this before? No, but I mean, you're better off walking away with $1 than nothing. So I might as well get the 19. Otherwise, you're getting nothing at all. Well, I don't know if there's discussion ahead of time. I don't know if there's a negotiation. Oh, I thought you said that right? the other person knew the rules. The, the rules they the knew rules. the rules, but I don't know if they negotiate it. I think it's. I think it's just. Oh, it's just a one-time shot. You make me an offer, I either take it or I don't take it. Correct. You either oh, take it gotcha. or you don't take it. Correct. I guess I would take anything so, at so, that point then. I thought we could negotiate, in which case so, I want 19. <laughs> no, of course, 1950. So, yeah, 1999. So, but I mean, I don't think you'll take it so, for a penny. So I got to give you at least a buck. Well, the goal, the goal of the thing was to find out what is the amount that people have to offer to have the person that's being offered accept at least 90% of the time. And the number they came up with was $6. What it says is if I offer you a buck, you're probably going to say no, because you know I'm keeping 19. And your perception is that it's not fair. When in reality, what you just said actually makes a lot more sense, right? Anything is better than nothing. Economically, anything is better than nothing. If I offer you a penny, you should take it because it's a penny you didn't have before. But that's not what people do. You know, if, they, if, I, if I offer you three bucks, the, the chances are you're going to say no. So I think that when advisors talk about, you know, I'm a fiduciary, you shouldn't pay a commission. That's the emotion that they're appealing to. They're, they're appealing to the emotion where I don't want you to keep $17 because I don't perceive it to be fair. I don't want you to get a commission. There's no real logic to it. If the product is good for me, it's good for me. It doesn't really matter whether or not somebody else gets a commission. But I, but I really think that that's the emotion. And it's a natural human emotion, I guess, because you know that's what that experiment proved. But that is, what, in my opinion, that's what they're appealing to when they talk about the fiduciary standard. But why is a commission so distasteful and, and a fee is not? Think about it. I think, I think there's a very negative connotation towards salespeople in, in, in any industry, right? Think about all the words that we've created to avoid saying, I'm a salesperson. I'm in business development. You know, all, all these different catchy keywords, right? So commission is viewed as being a sales, a, a component of sales. Whereas if I'm a fiduciary and you don't see the fee pull every quarter, month, whatever it is, I'm a consultant. I'm here to help you. We're in this together. I'm not viewed as a salesperson. I'm viewed as a financial advisor. Yeah, it, it is. Like it's listen. It all boils down to, to perception, and you know, it's all about sales. It really is. It's 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 how do I or how does an advisor position this to make it palatable for somebody to pay a fee, a commission, whatever it happens to be. But it's just interesting to me that there's such a negative connotation to to a commission. And the funny thing is we are fee-based, you know, we are fiduciary, but I but I have nothing against commissions and I don't think anybody else should either. So then if the commission versus fee component of determining who you go with to manage your money is should not be as much of an issue, then you know, Mike, you know, you're in, you're on the wealth management side. What do you what advice do you have for people that are looking for financial advisors right now? I mean, what what should they be looking at? What what's gonna make the decision for them? Listen, in a relationship like this, there's there's a high degree of trust, right? There you, you get involved in in the intimate details of somebody's financial life. 
you know, my opinion is you just have to find the right person that you can have a, a degree of trust in to the extent that you can, because you really do have to depend on that person to do what is substantially the right thing for you. And sometimes the right thing is a commission. It's difficult. It's, it's like, you know, when I go get my car fixed, you know, you've used this uh, analogy a bunch of times, right? A bunch of years, you know, years ago, you could, you could fix a car yourself with a, you know, with a screwdriver and a pair of pliers, you know, and now they plug it into a computer and, you know, you can't, you can't do anything yourself. So I feel helpless when I bring my car in, right? I bring it in, they can tell me anything and I have no idea. I have to trust the guy. You know, that's, I think probably how people feel about their advisor, except the stakes are a lot higher. You know, you can really screw up somebody's life. So my advice is, you know, you find someone that, that you, you feel that you can trust to the extent that you can, that you are sort of aligned with philosophically, you know, and ask lots of questions. You know, you've, you've said it before, you know, be wary of people use jargon, be wary of people use the word always and never, those kinds of things. You know, you've got to feel comfortable with somebody because it's a long-term relationship, or at least it should be a long-term relationship. Yeah. I also like the idea of working with somebody who's not afraid to tell you how it is. A lot of times people, I mean, we talk about all the time, 99 out of hundred reasons why people lose money in markets. It's not because they picked Facebook over Apple or something like that. It's because they made a dumb mistake and it was based on emotion, right? So I feel like you need to have an advice advisor who is not afraid to call you out or say, no, you need to think about this a different way. Uh, you need to have that kind of that grit that's inside of an advisor to a degree to keep you on track because look, we're all human. I mean, even, even for, you know, on my side where I'm, where we're managing portfolios, like I'm not in a bubble by myself. I've got a team of people that daily tell me how dumb I am or how, how big of a mistake we're about to make. And, and that's the reason, that's how you weed out the mistakes, right? Or, or the bad decisions. So I feel like you got to have that with the advisor too. It's, it's almost like a doctor to a certain degree. Yeah. Look, you need to stop smoking or whatever it is. You need to stop thinking this way to keep you on track, like you said. Listen, it's it's a strange thing. You know, people, there are people that, that we sit down with and you, and you do tell them things they don't want to hear. And some people literally don't want to hear it. I mean, you can tell them they don't want to hear and, and they just disagree with you and choose not to work with you because you didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. And I've said to people many times, why would you pay us a fee for our advice if you're not going to follow our advice? It doesn't really make any sense. If you're hell-bent on doing something that you're going to do, don't pay any advisor. Just go ahead and do it. If you're not going to take anybody's advice, there's no point in it. Yeah, because I mean, the real, I mean, in my opinion, the real value you get from a financial advisor, a, a good financial advisor is more of a psychiatrist than a money manager, to me at least. I mean, if you can find an advisor that can prevent you from making one or two bad mistakes at, at really bad times, my opinion, their fee or commission or whatever it is they're charging has been earned in perpetuity. Well, you said it many many times, you know, about, you know, that exact thing. The, the real thing is to keep people from making emotional decisions and to talk people off the ledge when they, when, you know, when they need it. And, and that is, that is where you earn your money. There's no question. So do you think that the title of fiduciary really carries the weight that, uh, that it's portrayed to? I don't, you know, I don't, I don't <laughs> think it means much of anything. I think it's, I don't, yeah. I, I, you know, I had some probably not a good thing to say, but, but it's, it's, it's kind of stupid. I, you know, I, I have to act in your best interest. I mean, it doesn't mean anything. It's just, it's just, it's an unenforceable, listen, it, if you've ever been in court with a litigator, I mean, what are you going to do? Take somebody to court and try to prove that they didn't act in your best interest. Yeah, I mean, you, might as well just flush you get a good litigator at that point. Yeah. You get a good litigator and, 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 and he, and he can convince you that, you know, the guy to hit you in the head with a hammer was for your best, in your best interest for some reason. You know, I mean, it's, it's all bets are off once that, once that happens. I mean, it's, it's so vague. That it's, I just can't imagine how that's enforceable in any way. Well, and I think you said in your stuff earlier is that a lot of times you frankly don't have to act in the best interest. You just have to disclose it buried in some documentation that nobody ever reads. I mean, we're all in this business. I mean, how many times are we really dug through a lot of these SEC filings and say, oh, wait, there's a conflict of interest somewhere? I mean, 
how many people really do that? Yeah. Zero. Very, very few. If, if anyone, yeah, zero is probably more like it. It's an interesting thing. Um, you know, I, I really, I tell people all the time that advisors, we listen to, you know, you and I had a, a joint meeting yesterday, right? And, and these people came in and they were very sophisticated financially. And the first thing I said to them is there are areas you're going to know more than I do. And you're very sophisticated in the actual investment world. And that's why I'm going to bring, bring Tino into this because you probably know more than I do about this. You know, I'm a generalist and I know, you know, a little bit about, about a lot of different things. And I know how to put it all together, but I don't think that people realize that that's really the role of an advisor. I think everybody has a different idea of what an advisor is. Sometimes I think they conflate advisor with stock picker. I would say most times. Um, yeah, it, it's not uncommon. I've gotten to the point now where when I meet somebody for the first time, I literally ask them, what is their perception of a of a wealth manager or a financial advisor? And what is it that they expect from that sort of a relationship? And the answers are all over the road. I mean, to me, an advisor is a personal CFO, right? And, and uh, you know, what large organization has their CFO doing bookkeeping? It's just in this instance, I mean, and again, I would be really skeptical, frankly, having been in this business for a while now, I'd be very skeptical of any advisor that says they do the asset management, all, all of them. If they do everything, I guess is my point. I mean, there's just too much work to do. I mean, for what we're doing here, I mean, there's no way I would have time to meet with clients like the way you do, Mike. I just, it would be impossible. And I think vice versa. Listen, you know, it's, it's, it's what we were talking about last time, being able to admit that you don't know. Right. There are so many guys out there that don't want to admit that they don't know something that the client perceives that they know. You know, they don't want to they don't want to break that illusion, you know, sort of fake it. So on a lighter note. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not really that. No, bad. it's not. It is getting sort of a little negative. A little a little dark. I don't know. Anyways, so so let's switch gears for a minute. Every superhero has uh, has a has an arch nemesis. Tino is our our local superhero, so of course he has to have one too. Tino, have you seen Mr. Musk's most recent post that <laughs> Tesla will no longer be accepting Bitcoin for purchasing vehicles? Uh, I, I did. Yes. I, I read that the other day. I have a theory behind this whole thing, but go ahead. I do too. And that's actually, I wanted to get your opinion. So, you know, the fallout of that obviously is that uh, Bitcoin dropped 15%. And just about everything I've read has been analysts trying to determine what the next crypto will be that he's going to jump into. I've seen all sorts of different opinions. Uh, but the one that I haven't seen, which is my opinion, is that the next crypto that he's going to be interested in and that he's going to um, promote is going to be Bitcoin. Yeah. It follows his MO, right? Uh, he tends to buy something, then promote it. Uh, once it gets hot, he sells it. And then he talks about some other coin. And then, you know, obviously the, the original crypto drops and then he buys right back into it again. I, I'm, I'm not sure why this would be any different, but I, I thought I would get your take on it. I, I, Did he buy a whole pile of it yesterday? Maybe. I mean, look, I mean, who knows? He, yeah, he, I mean, he probably bought it personally. It did come back up, I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, you, uh, you know, was it back in January? I think they built a, Tesla built a position in Bitcoin and it exploded from there. They cashed out or at least a portion that they cashed out. At. Uh, I mean, look, he's been shown to be able to manipulate things that are, you know, registered securities like his company's stock and he's gotten away with it. Bitcoin, <laughs> another example. I mean, look, remember, this is, they're going to have to write, a, well, they're going to write multiple books about Elon Musk, but one of them, they've got to address the fact that he just does whatever he wants. I mean, remember back in 2000, whatever it was, maybe four or five years ago, you remember Solar City? That was that other company that he owned. I think he had his cousin running it or something mm -hmm. like that. And it was going on, it was going under. So Tesla buys Solar City. I mean, the, the conflict of interest there is unquantifiable. 
and he, they get, he gets a hall pass. And then uh, a couple of years later, ta- taking Tesla private, stock shoots up. He's like, oh, I'm just joking around. Pays a $20 million fine to the SEC or $25 million fine, which is like a parking ticket for him. Why not manipulate Bitcoin? I mean, in his mind, he's probably thinking, maybe I've taken it too far with these registered securities that I could go to jail for. But Bitcoin's completely wild, wild west stuff. I mean, they could, it's, it's totally unregulated. Why not do what you're saying, Remy? Let's screw with the price. I've got power to do it. And I'll make a little bit of money along the way. Sure. I mean, when he when he tweeted that or announced it, how I assume it was a tweet. I, I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, Bitcoin dropped seventeen percent since then. Was that a couple of days ago? It's back up eight percent. And, and remember, I would not be shocked if a heavy portion of those purchases were with Tesla or with with Elon personally. No question. I mean, remember this is remember the reason why he said Tesla is no longer accepting Bitcoin. It's because of climate change. So basically, the amount of energy required to do the mathematical computations to to mine Bitcoins is substantial. So I guess his argument there is that all the fossil fuels being used to fuel the computers and the you know the processors and whatnot to do all this is bad for the environment. This has been going on now for years, like four or five years, people have known that the power consumption requirements for mining Bitcoin and other crypto is off the charts. So he's clearly screwing with people. I mean, he had to have known this. He knows everything. He's a genius. So back in January, when they built the position in in, in Bitcoin, it wasn't like Bitcoin was climate friendly back then. And now all of a sudden, three months later, four months later, it's not. He's screwing with people and it's working. Tina, why don't you start a Twitter war with Elon? Oh, no chance. I would love that. See if you can take him down. (laughs) I would love that. Oh, no, 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 no. I I know my limitations. Like we said, we know what we don't know. Elon Musk is a, a, a genius and he's got a few more followers, a couple more commas in his bank account than I do, so I'm not going down that road. I've got like 200 followers on Twitter or something like that. We can always hold out hope. (laughs) This podcast is created and presented by Darwin Asset Management, LLC and Darwin Advisors, LLC, collectively referred to as Darwin. Darwin does not make any representation or warranties and therefore takes no responsibility as to the accuracy, timeliness, suitability, completeness, or relevance of any information contained in this podcast. Any tax or legal information contained in this podcast is general in nature. Always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. The information presented does not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice. Different types of investments involve varying degrees of risk, and there can be no assurance that any investment or strategy will be suitable or profitable for a client's portfolio. All investment strategies have the potential for profit and loss. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Information presented is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities mentioned herein.